she said to me, if you drink today, you're not sorry to the bus. And I'd woken up that morning with knowing that it was a football day or soccer, as you call it, big game in the UK, Liverpool versus Manchester United. I'm a Liverpool fan, so it's one of the biggest games of the year. So I've woken up with the idea of it's the football day today. I'm going to have a drink. Football's on. With that threat she made, I don't know if I didn't believe her or whether I was just praying that it wasn't going to happen, but I started drinking before the football came on. Just before the first half finished, I got a text saying, I'm, I'm going into Mayberg. You better get the, get the hospital bag ready. We'll be there soon. So my first thought is I better have another can quickly. Tears roll down your face Reaching for something Someone to embrace To numb pain Welcome to Sobriety Checkpoint. Are you a parent in recovery, wishing for peace and emotional sobriety? Do you find yourself up late at night, Googling things like how to overcome negative thinking, or why is my heart racing? Do you wake up with big, ambitious goals only to feel resentful and irritable when you put everyone else's needs first and leave no time for yourself again? Hey, I'm Felicia. I'm a 12-step returned therapist, and I too have battled anxiety and that critical inner voice. All I wanted was peace and just a little bit of time to myself. I tried to strive and achieve to find happiness, but that only left me with more anxiety. I finally realized I needed to discover my true identity to find the peace I was striving to attain. In this podcast, you're going to find solutions to navigating mental health, spirituality, and relationships to experience the peace you've been craving. It's time for that desperately sought-after solo target run. Grab your keys and let's go for a drive. There's no judgment or breathalyzer at this sobriety checkpoint. By the beauty of it all, recognize I was always destined to fall into deepest dark. We are stronger than we think we are, so fight. And show your strength. Welcome back to another episode of Sobriety Checkpoint. Before we get started, I'd like to invite you to become a Sobriety Checkpoint Insider. By becoming an insider, you're going to get weekly updates with the latest podcast episode, emotional sobriety and self-care tips, as well as early bird access to special offers. You can also head over to Facebook and join my community where you're going to find other parents in recovery, seeking solutions to emotional sobriety through exploring mental and emotional health, spirituality, and relationships. Check out the show notes for the Insider and Facebook group links. I hope to see you in there. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe to my show, leave a review, and share it with a friend. Reviews help boost my ratings, which helps other parents in recovery find my show. Thank you so much, and I'm super grateful for your support. All right, now let's get started. Today I have Stuart Lee, an author from the UK, here on the show. I'm excited for you to hear his story. I've been to so many 12-step meetings, and as a therapist, I've heard so many live stories. 
Listening to Stuart today was a bit different than anything I've ever experienced. I think the power of storytelling really hit me for the first time, which was quite a surprise since my life is about listening to people tell their story. I'm excited to showcase storytelling on this podcast. I've had my good friend J.P. Cefali tell his story as well, and I had a similar feeling listening to him. What occurred to me today, though, was that the feeling I had when listening to J.P. was the same feeling I had listening to Stuart, which has to do with the time-stopping experience of getting lost in the vulnerability, authenticity, and raw storytelling of hopelessness turned hopeful. There's so much power in showcasing these voices for you to hear so that you can find a glimmer of light in the darkness. This is my hope for you as you listen to the stories you will hear on Sobriety Checkpoint. I hope that you will take what you want and leave the rest, pay attention to the similarities and not the differences. Now here's a little bit more about Stuart. He describes himself as a pretty ordinary man but he spent most of his adult life influenced by an addiction to drugs and alcohol. This addiction took him to a place where he thought his only option was to end his own life, but luckily his attempt at suicide failed. Not long after he decided that his life needed to change, he embarked on a journey into recovery. Now, with over 10 years of continuous sobriety, he's on a new journey, one where he's trying to help as many people as he can using his experience of addiction. He wrote a book called Me and My Addiction. This book is written in a way that he hopes will give some inspiration to addicts to change their lives too, while it also educates family members of addicts so they can better help their loved ones. He's also launched a new recovery brand called Sobriety Rocks. His aim is to help people with the tools of recovery while also breaking the stigma that sobriety is boring. He wants to show people that sobriety is more fun than you might expect, and it truly does rock. My name is Stuart Lee. You're not from the UK, so you would never, there's actually a famous comedian in the UK that's got exactly the same name as me. And we often get confused because I'm really funny as well. I'm not him. Um, I'm Stuart Lee, the author. Um, my, my story is I spent most of my adult life heavily influenced by addiction to drugs and alcohol. So a question that gets asked a lot when you talk about addiction and being an addict is people talk about the, what led you to it, what made you turn to drugs and drink. People talk about some sort of trauma in their lifetime. I'm kind of different in that sense. Like I don't think there was ever, I, don't, I didn't have what I would call a traumatic childhood. I had what I felt was quite a normal childhood growing up. I had a working class family. My dad went out and worked hard and the money came home and then we would go and do stuff as a family on the weekends. But a lot of it did involve alcohol and going to pubs. But I just thought that was normal because that seemed like what everybody was doing around the same ages as me. But I found looking back now, I can see that I was always kind of fascinated by alcohol and parties, the lifestyle, watching adults have a drink and see what. It looked from the outside looking like they were all having a great time. I always kind of knew that I would do that as well. I got to teenage years and started getting involved with friends at school who would go out and drink at the weekends. And I thought that was pretty cool. So I went along with them and got involved in that. I found myself drinking to 
like extremes from a very young age. Like I would get to the point where I could barely walk and just about got home, uh, put myself in some quite dangerous positions, but I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. I just thought it was normal, um, justified it as I was having fun with my friends. And at that point it didn't really seem, you know, I never sort of looked at it and thought, I'm drinking out of control. I need to sort this out. It just seemed like it was a bit of fun. Everyone was doing it. Um, I was always the one that went like a little bit too far, further than most other people and probably caused a few problems. I discovered alcohol at such a young age and it had all these feelings of being very shy and anxious and not feeling like I fit in. And alcohol alleviated all those worries in my life. As soon as I had a drink. I felt like I was incredible. I felt like I could talk to anybody. I felt I could be funny and make people laugh. I loved the way it made me feel. I lost most ambition from a very young age. I wasn't really interested in leaving school and going to college and studying or anything. I just wanted to earn money and get drunk. That was kind of the ambition I had. That's what I did. I just got it. I started working full time to earn money to be able to drink. That started off years of alcohol abuse. But yeah, I didn't think it was hit wrong with it because it seemed like that's what everyone else was doing, going out on the weekends, having fun. It was like a big night, nightlife culture in the UK. Conventionally, everything that went wrong in my life, alcohol was somewhere involved in that. Like the way I would behave when I was drinking would cause problems and that would ultimately cause things to go wrong in my life, whether it be relationships or problems with family or friends. I could never put two and two together and realize that alcohol was the cause of most of these problems. So I'm thinking I'm doing okay. Um, and I always kind of convinced myself that when something important enough happens in my life, I'll just stop or I'll sort myself out. And then I found out I was going to be a dead dad at quite a young age. So I thought that becoming a dad was going to be what saves me. I sort my life out for this. I didn't, you know, my son came along and I just carried on exactly where I was. Um, before, but kind of justified it in my mind, thinking I was okay to be doing it. And then mother of my son decided that she couldn't put up with me behaving that way anymore and, uh, you know, asked me to leave. And that sent me on a bit of a worse spiral because I've always found that like, what I would describe as the most controlled periods of my drinking was always when I was in a relationship and I felt like I had someone to kind of be present for. If they didn't want me to drink very much, it would be like a reason for me to try and limit it. But when I was a single man, single young man, there was no real reason not to go off, off the rails. So, you know, when, when she kicked me out, that made me go much worse than I had been before. And I got heavily involved in drugs as well at that time. I kind of tricked myself. What I discovered was that when I was growing up, all my friends kind of liked doing drugs and drinking. And I was never too bothered about drugs. I was just, alcohol was enough for me. Like that's all I cared about. But when I started taking drugs as well, it, it made me realize that I could actually drink for longer if I'm taking drugs as well, because it kind of balances each other out. So you get like a little bit drunk and then you take some drugs and then it kind of levels out a little bit and then you drink some more, start feeling a little bit drunk again, then take some more drugs and it levels you out. And then I was going through periods of like sometimes days without sleeping. So it was just constantly up and down and up and down. Or two periods of different types of drugs as well. It got to the point where I was really bad. Uh, I was into cocaine, which is one of the worst. It's such an addictive substance because the high you get from it is so intense, but it like, only lasts for a short period of time. So 
you take some of it and then it's like within sort of 10, 15 minutes, you want more because the high is gone and you're just chasing high like all night. Um, and Drew Jones over it as well. Um, but obviously cocaine over here is a very expensive drug. So like, unless you've, unless you're rich, like you can't really afford to be taking it. So I got into the habit of, I was selling it to fund my own habit. It was all point that my mental health was just shot to pieces because I was like going for weeks on end with taking a stimulant drug and then mixing it with alcohol, which is depressing. So you're going up and down and your mental state just has no idea like how it's supposed to be feeling or reacting to any situations. And I can go from extremely happy to extremely sad quite quickly, even now, because that's how my mental health works. So imagine that state of mind when you're mixing drugs and drink with it as well. I would go from happy one minute to like, I want to kill myself the next without even realizing it. I think there's been studies actually where it says that there's a chemical within protein that causes the balance in the brain to be so off key that lots of young men are just like all of a sudden killing themselves because they're addicted to that drug and it's something within it that's causing their brains to just go from happy to desperately sad in an instant. I was getting myself in so much debt with dealers who owed money to and they were very happy. I'm getting threatened. I thought I was going to get killed at one point because I was in, in so deep. I got to a point where I, I thought there was no way out. I thought that killing myself would be the best option. I tried luckily, as you can see, because I'm here and I'm talking, I failed. I didn't manage to kill myself. I was pretty shit at that too. The darkness that a person is feeling to get to a place where they think that death is the best option actually make an attempt, you know, something was successful, you know, I'm quite lucky that I wasn't. You hear people like there's a stigma around it, around suicide, people say, you know, you know, hell, it's a selfish thing to do, what about their children or their family? But honestly, in that moment, I believed that all of my family, my son, my parents, my sisters, I truly believed they would all be best off if I wasn't in their life anymore because I was causing all much trouble. That's where addiction took me. It took me to a place where I actually did not want to wake up. That sounding haunts me still now, thinking back to how I felt on that, on that night where, you know, not caring the world and physically not just, you know, not wanting to wake up. But luckily, you know, I was, I was unsuccessful and things, things carry on for a little bit after that. And then I, I kind of realized that I needed to make some changes in my life because, uh, I was going to end up either in jail or dead. So I put myself into a treatment center to get a team of drugs. I went and stayed in like a house in the middle of nowhere, uh, like a, Dry health policy, they tested you for alcohol and drugs, make sure you haven't been taking or using. I stayed there for four and a half, five months and then came out of there and I haven't touched drugs since. The problem with that was like, I talked about this to, to someone else recently, that's in vain. I came out of there and I saw that alcohol was okay. All the troubles that I've caused in my life, I sent it around my our relationship with drugs, not alcohol, because my absolute alcohol is a normal thing. And most people look at drugs as like, that's bad. If you stop taking drugs, then you'd be okay. And like, even, even when I came out of the rehab center and I was around family, I decided that I was going to start drinking again. None of them were like worried. They didn't, they didn't see it as a big deal that I was going to drink again. They kind of assumed I would drink again because alcohol was safe. It's such a socially acceptable thing to, to drink alcohol. You know, it's advertised everywhere. It's normalized. It's, it's tradition to drink at a lot of occasions family kind of justify it for you as well. Like when I would get drunk and I'd be like a little bit 
over the top with something, they might say things like, oh, yeah. I've only had one too many. The first one for me is one too many, but even family don't realize that. They sort of go, oh, you know, yeah, he's only had one too many. Or they'll say things like, well, is it a hard week? He's got a stressful job or, you know, make excuses for you. And so I, I carried on drinking for five years after I got clean of drugs. Although it seemed like probably the most controlled of my drinking, it was probably in my, in my mind, it was the worst for me because I was, I was desperately trying to prove to people that I wasn't an alcoholic. I was like trying really hard, but like it, it was, it was hard for me to drink. At certain times because it would make me, you know, sometimes drink to remove me think of getting drugs again. Um, I didn't want to take drugs because that was what everyone seems was bad. So that made it difficult initially. And then I was trying to drink responsibly. So it proved to everyone that I was okay. So I found myself in a point where I was either drinking alcohol or I was thinking about drinking alcohol or I was planning on finding a way to manage a situation where I would need to be somewhere that meant I could drink alcohol. On the days that I was drinking, I was okay. On the days that I wasn't drinking, not okay because I was thinking about drinking and it was so like alcohol consumed me 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I was either thinking about it or I was doing it. And it took me five years of like pain and misery and you know, my mental health got even worse. It was like, I'd got rid of the drugs, but I was still feeling suicidal, which was like, which I thought was just a, a byproduct of taking drugs that made me that way. Um, but I discovered it wasn't, you know, and yeah, I set up on a journey to get sober back then. Um, and I'd, I'd been to AA meetings before that. So I kind of knew like what they were about and what, what they had to offer. So I went right back and I went to meetings and you know, that is what, that is what got me sober back then and saved my life. Since getting into recovery and AA meetings and getting sober and becoming really self-aware and learning a lot about myself, what I didn't realize back then was that the problem I had wasn't really like a drink problem or a drug problem. It was a staying sober problem. Cause for me, addiction is not so much to do with the substance. It's more about the reasons why I'm doing it in the first place. I believe that addiction is basically just fixing how I feel using something outside of me. I didn't feel like I fitted in with this world. I didn't feel like I could talk to the girls. I feel like I was very popular at school. The easiest way for me to change that was to have a drink and then everything felt great. Um, and that's what I always did. I don't have to be having learned all this kind of stuff. It makes it easier for me to understand why I did the things I did and not give myself such a hard time about it. And it's what I can use now to stop me from thinking about picking up a drink. Like I've, I've gone over 10 years now without a drop of alcohol, which is nothing short of a miracle. When things go wrong in my life now, I don't really ever think about picking up a drink because I'm so aware of like what the problem is and, and why I would be thinking the way I'm thinking. I, I know how to overcome those challenges when they happen. Now I'm all about, like, I just want to help as many people as I can. But I went through many years of going to AA meetings. I think like some, some people tell me for years and years and years, and, you know, like I've got no, got no problem with people who do for like 25, 30 years. That's completely up to them. I just felt like I needed something more and like something different. Um, and I. Started doing things like I would go back to the treatment center that I went to 15 years ago to speak to the kids that were in there to like try and give them a little bit of motivation, give them some hope by seeing someone who's been where they are. And whilst I was in there, one of the guys said, oh, you should write a book. And I'd always avoided writing a book because like first I didn't think I could write a book, like, you know, 
I, I'd always avoided like colleges and universities because I thought of writing like a 5,000 word essay, which is low. No, I don't want to, I don't want to be doing that. Which I couldn't, I don't think I could think of a write 5,000 words on anything. So I'd avoided writing a book because I knew it was a big job. And then things happened in my life that were completely like so random, but just like bumping into the right person at the right time and, and getting involved with someone who's an author coach that teaches people how to write books. And, um, it just seemed like everything in the universe was aligning for me to like get on with it and, and write a book. So starting off on, the, on that journey, um, a little over a year ago, started talking about writing a book and, and then within a few months, I had 45,000 words written down and going off to an editor and go through that process. And one of the processes in AA is, um, like writing the inventory of yourself and sharing it with someone else. And I can totally understand the mechanics of the 12 steps and what you're doing and why it would work and why you would feel bad by doing this stuff. But writing a book and sharing it with anyone who wants to buy it, that's like a, that's like a real extreme version of five, isn't it? Like sharing that, that anyone who wants to go on Amazon and buy it. When the guy said, oh, right, yeah, you should write a book. One of the things that stopped me from doing it was I read someone else, um, someone else who was in recovery by a book and it was, it was brilliant. Like it was an inspirational story, uh, how this guy turned his life around from prisons to successful person. But the book was very centered around just him and what he'd done and what he'd achieved. And I thought that doesn't really help anyone. Like that's just making it all about you. It's just an ego driven exercise. And I didn't want to be like that. So I was very mindful when I was writing the book of how I was portraying the stories about me. And the stories in there are, you know, they're in there, but they're only there as a relevance to pointing out what we're making in a particular chapter. Um, so it's, it's written in a way that you is giving hope to anyone who's suffering, um, or someone who's in early recovery that they can change their lives and give them something to identify with. But it's also written in a way that I hope will educate people who aren't addicts so they can get a better understanding of the illness. Because, you know, as, as you know, like addiction's not, it, it's a, it's a family illness, isn't it? Like it spreads so far and wide, the ripple effect. You now we're in this little bubble that we think what we're doing is only affecting us, but the, the ripple effect that we spread outwards is, is huge. And a lot of family addiction touches most people, I think. Most people in the world can say they, they know someone who's struggling or they've got a family member who's struggling. So, you know, most people could probably read the book and it gives them a better understanding. I'm an addict, so just writing a book's not enough for me. I've got to go, I've got to go even further than that. So, um, I've just launched another online platform. One of my biggest barriers to getting sober was thinking, what would I do if I don't drink? My life will become dull. What, what else will there be? And I think a lot of people have that kind of mindset as well. They think they need to have, have alcohol to be able to enjoy themselves and have any fun. And it is a big barrier for a lot of people to get in sober. But the reality is I've actually had more fun since getting sober than I've ever had in my life because now I'm present. I, I can actually do more because I'm not focused on being in the pub or just sat at home drinking. I can be at more places, do more things. And actually remember the things that I 
doing. I really want to promote that idea on a great that stigma. Sobriety is boring. Some of the best people I know are people that are in recovery, people that are sober. So I've launched one called Sobriety Rocks. The name's kind of suggesting like it's a destination to want to get to. But at the same time, it's like a statement. Sobriety Rocks. Like, it's good fun. And initially, I'm going to have online get-togethers, gatherings. I don't want to call it meetings because I don't want it to sound like AA. I want something, I want to sound new, fresh, I want it to be different. I want to attract younger people to show them that they don't have to be going out partying because they're young. You're never too young to get into recovery and sobriety. I'm trying to promote the fact that it's fun. We're going to have online gatherings once a week so that people can go anywhere in the world. That's going to be like free for anyone to come along um, once a week initially. And then once I can get some facilitators to run other nights there, you know, we could spread out to more nights per week. And then I'm going to be trying to put together a sober retreat. It will come for a weekend and take part in some activities, some mindfulness, some cold water therapy, some practical tips to stay sober, some team building exercises and fun. My big dream with sobriety rocks is to start putting on sober festivals. I want to put on a proper music sort of gig. Big stage, I've been somewhere, learned to great music, great food, great non-alcoholic beverages, um, and just show people that we don't need alcohol to have fun. I, what, there's nothing better to me. I don't recommend it to people. Um, like I said from the beginning that when I get sober, I don't want to stop doing the things that I enjoy just because I don't drink anymore. It took me a little while to get to a point where I was completely comfortable with it, but I still go to music gigs now. I go to raves now where people get drunk, they take drugs, they're off their heads. And I turn up and I go there sober the whole night, party all night, and then drive home the next day. And I absolutely love it because I used to go there because I love music. But I used to just get so wasted that I would like fall asleep in the corner. And I wouldn't remember the night. Whereas like, no, I go there, I go there completely sober. I used to worry because I used to think, well, what will people think of me if they see me and then they think I'm sober? But no one cares. Like, no one actually gives who hoots what I'm doing. Um, they're just more focused on themselves and what they're doing. And I have the best time. So, anyone listening, if you want to get involved in that um, on Facebook, it's facebook.com forward slash sobriety rocks UK. We're on Instagram at sobriety rocks UK. I'm building a website. And that's going to be sobrietyrocks.co.uk. My aim is to just build a community of people. Addiction is such an individual thing and recovery is a very individual thing as well. So what works for one person might not work for another. I've had people say to me, you know, I've tried this method of recovery. Couldn't get my head around it. It didn't work for me. I need something different. I don't think there should be a, a monopoly on parts of recovery. The, the more the merrier, because I said what works for one person isn't going to work for everybody. One of the things I put in my mission statement with Sobriety Rocks is that I've got no opinion on other recovery methods. I certainly wouldn't say to people not to go to other methods if they need to go to other groups. And also from Sobriety Rocks, then I would openly encourage them to do that because everyone's recovery is different. Yeah. What I do isn't going to be the same. That's going to work for everybody else. I'm just trying to give a little bit of my knowledge back to people and see if what I've been doing has helped them. I love that. I hope to see you on one of the meetings soon as well. Yeah, that'd be cool. I need to 
check that out. I have, I do have one question about your story, if you feel comfortable sharing about how sobriety has impacted you as a dad. I don't want to say too much about establishing the book. I wasn't present for my eldest son, which is why his mother kicked me out. The years after that, when I was seeing him every other weekend, I would see that as a burden to me. I remember picking him up and it'd be like, I wouldn't know what to do with him because I didn't know anything about being in the pub drinking. If I do anything else to entertain like a two-year-old child, I had no clue what I was doing. And I would be counting down the minutes until I could drop him off again so that I could get back to the pub. And sometimes I would just take him to the pub with me and have one or two pints before I dropped him back to his mum. Alcohol took away any drive to be a good dad because at the time alcohol was more important. And the story that's in the book about being a parent, the mother of my two younger children, she was pregnant with my daughter. And we knew we had a daughter because we, between us, we'd have like all boys had their girls. So we were both really excited the fact we were going to have a girl. She was two weeks late from expected date. So she was like trying all the little things to try and get the labor to move along. All the wise tales that are supposed to bring a, a labor in. And she woke up one morning, she said, I'm going to have a drive with my dad to go out some speed bumps to try and get the baby to come along. She said to me, if you drink today, you're not going to the bus. And I'd woken up that morning with knowing that it was a football day or soccer, as you call it. Big game in the UK, Liverpool versus Manchester United. I'm a Liverpool fan, so it's one of the biggest games of the, of the year. So I've woken up with the idea of it's the football day today. I'm going to have a drink. Football's on. With that threat she made, I don't know if I didn't believe her or whether I was just praying that it wasn't going to happen. But I started drinking before the football came on. Just before the first half finished, I got a text saying, I'm, I'm going into Mayberg. You better get, get the hospital bag ready. We'll be there soon. So my first thought is I better have another can quickly before she gets back. Um, to have another can of lager. And then her dad pulls up in the car. I get in. Um, I get run down a little bit because I'm, I have a drink. And then all the way to the hospital, what I could think about was I showed this labor doesn't take very long, like the last one. So I don't want to be in the hospital for too long. So we get to the hospital and then my daughter's born quite quickly. And all I could think about was I hope that my partner stays in hospital overnight so that I can go home and drink peacefully without anyone. And she decided to stay in overnight, which I was quite pleased at. Then her dad said, do you want to wait here for a little bit longer and get the bus home? Which I'll lift home now. She lived over and said, do you want to go now rather than getting the bus? Um, which I was more relieved taxing, but I couldn't leave us for an hour out. Got some more drink and I just sat and drank all night. Thinking I was being the best parent in the world if I'm celebrating the best of my daughter. But the reality of it was, I don't remember any important details from that day at all. I don't remember the room we were in. I don't remember the first outfit that my daughter wore when we dressed. I don't remember. I, don't, I, remember, I remember nothing. I remember the time she was born. Um, my, every, every memory I've got of that day is just my obsession to alcohol. That's all I can think about. And that's quite a sad story, but a lot of people who are like addicts or alcoholics will understand that completely because they will, they will know how strong the obsession is and they'll be able to relate to another part of their life where they've done a similar thing. So in answer to the question, what has sobriety done? Most areas of my life is just, just turned around 180. I'm more focused on what I can do for other people now rather than what's in it for me. When it comes to your kids, that's 
That's one of my main focuses of staying sober now is like the relationship I've got with my children. My oldest son is now 20 years old, living in his old flat. I know I don't look old enough to have a 20 year old son. My younger two kids, they come and stay with me every other weekend. I got a great relationship. I've just managed to buy tickets for a football match coming up this season for me and my youngest son, because he's a big Liverpool fan too. We got more trouble together and it's just all these things that I can now do with my children that I wouldn't have done if I was still drinking because my obsession, the obsession to drink was so strong that nothing else mattered. I, you know, I wouldn't want to go and do anything with them because it would mean that I could go and do what I wanted to do, which was drink. And it's not, you know, not, not just my children, but my, my sister's children. I can be present as a, as an uncle now. I remember being at birthday parties and just being there physically, but not mentally. Like I just didn't want to be there. Whereas now I take an interest in their lives and yeah, it's paid dividends because I, I feel like I've got a really relationship with my family again. And that's, I always say this to people that, you know, what recovery gives you. I've got a great life now with material things like job, car, house, stuff like that. Material things don't really matter. That can burn down in a second and you have to replace it. But your relationships with your family, that's stuff that money can't buy. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, would you take 30 seconds and share it with another parent in recovery who may be looking for solutions to mental health and sobriety? Also, please leave a quick review on Apple Podcasts so other parents just like you can find the show. I'm super excited to know this podcast is helping you. Tune in to new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday. I'll see you back here on your next Target Run. Until next time. We are stronger than we think we are so fight and show your strength bring grace from our god bring grace from our god bring grace from our god oh bring grace from our god